You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 235, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Do you want to tell uh, people about the uh, Fantasy Football League, no, Trey? No, I'm not doing pretty good, Mike. It's uh, been a rough <laughs> year. Uh, I'm over. I haven't won a game yet. It's uh, oh, oh, What is it, 0-3 today? Pretty rough. Pretty rough. It's pretty rough, wow. Mike. It's uh, it's only beginning long season, so I'm not worried because my team's competitive. I've just been playing teams that seem it's, to want to score the most that, points. That's, that seemed to be better, right? That, just playing teams that seem to be better. Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> and uh, uh, just, you know, well, I you know I, I I have an unfair advantage. I have Maury's leadership, so you know. Yeah. Well, can I borrow him bad. for next year? Because no. No, he is he is an exclusive property. Well, I'm not worried. It's like I said, it's uh we're just getting started this year, so uh, uh plenty of time for me to make some moves and a comeback. So all I got to do is make the playoffs, Mike, get that 6 seed and I'm in and then anything can happen. Let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I've been in the same situation before, so I know that that is possible. Absolutely. But you got a long road. Yeah. It's a long road. So yeah. well, what can we say? Let's talk about something a little bit happier, and that's your Angels book, Mike. Uh, how's that been going? It's out, and uh, the reviews yeah, are know, starting to come in. Yeah, it's like upward to 50 reviews already, like in a week, a little over a week, uh, which is pretty good. I mean, I, I don't know if that compares to Unseen Realm. I you know, I don't don't have that, that much of a memory, but uh, a lot of good feedback. Um, I've gotten... You know, some an email, you know, just from colleagues and whatnot, you know, that, that doesn't appear on Amazon. And so far, a pretty enthusiastic response. It's actually helpful. Uh, even though I'm not, in, in the words of one person on Facebook, I'm not telling people how to make angels do stuff for them. <laughs> and if you haven't seen Lexum's uh, commercial for your book uh, with Maury oh, yeah. in it, it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, Ma- Maury is multi-talented. Not only is he a... Uh, fantasy football wizard, but he's also quite good on screen. <laughs> yeah, that suit looks good for you. I think you need to wear that suit at the next conference. Right? right? No, no, no. It, that that suit is happily back where it came from, whatever place they rented that thing from. <laughs> well, so. well, we also could mention. Uh, speaking of conferences, Mike, um, the annual ETS and SBL conferences at the end of November. Um, or middle of November are coming up and we plan on doing yep. a live Q and a in Denver tentatively planned for that Friday, November 16th, yep. but uh, we haven't confirmed it, but that's what we're trying to target. So if you're in the Denver area, start to mentally plan to um, come out and see us in Denver in uh, November. Yeah. And then once we lock that down too, we'll, I'm sure we'll have other details emerge too. Absolutely. Well, all right, Mike. Well, um, we're back into Colossians. Yes, we are. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Uh, we're basically having the uh, a little more than half uh, of the, the, the chapter today, and we'll finish it up on the, uh, the next following episode as well. So in this one, first 17 verses, there are really two trajectories uh, that I want to sort of follow for this episode. 
And I'll just give them to you ahead of time, you know, sort of a preview here. But the two trajectories are the already but not yet aspect of the Christian status and how discipleship is rooted in that status. And then secondly, the already but not yet status of Christ's kingdom rule. So based upon what Paul has said in the first two chapters, I mean, he's laid the foundation for sort of drawing out some implications. He's going to talk about you know, Christian conduct in light of this. And so these are the two things that sort of pop out uh, in Colossians 3, these two already but not yet things, these things that are in process but that are still moving toward an ultimate conclusion. So the Christian status and how discipleship is rooted in that status, and then the, the whole idea of Christ. Uh, his kingdom rule presently, and then again, moving toward uh, sort of an ultimate climax. So let's just jump into chapter three. I'll read the first four verses, and then we will get into some thoughts about it. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we'll stop there at verse 4, and you can already get this flavor of, of stuff that's already, but then stuff that's not yet. Again, it, it, it jumps out in this passage, and that's really the first thing you know, to really observe. You know, this, is, this sort of paradigm, already but not yet, is in Paul's mind in a number of places, and in the mind of other biblical writers too, but it, it's kind of obvious here. You know, you have died, your life is hidden. You know, these are like present realities. But then Christ, who is your life? But when he appears, you're out there in the future. Again, this already, but not yet. So the already stuff, again, gets expressed even grammatically. Uh, there are certain aorist tenses. And again, for uh, those who, who need to review, the aorist tense in Greek is sort of a snapshot. It, it, it views an action as an event you know, an action as a completed whole. So it's not an action continuing. It's not an action that needs, you know, something to be supplemented. It's not an action in process. Process isn't even in view. It just views the action as a whole completed sort of thing. Uh, and there are perfect tenses. Perfect is sort of building upon the aorist idea anyway, where you have an event that has occurred in the past and it has ongoing ramifications. It's not that the event is in process. It's that there are certain things that extend from it, ramifications that extend from it that you know move into you know, into the future, move beyond. I should say that's probably a better way to say it. That that sort of have implications beyond this the completed event. So the phrase "you have been raised with Christ" it's an aorist passive. And it's a completed event, completed action, and passive. I mean that that happened because of an external force. You have died. Okay, there's an aorist again. Your life has been hidden with Christ. That's a perfect, and also, again, a passive. You have died is active. So you have two passives, one active, and you have two heiress and one perfect here. So you have this already kind of thing going on. And then there are some already in the perfect uh, tense, that, that, that phrasing, your life has been hidden with Christ. You have ongoing ramifications. Then when we hit verse 4, then Paul's going to be looking to the future, you know, the, the, the not yet stuff. And again, the not yet aspect is when Christ is manifested. This is talking about a future sort of thing. Uh, if you are looking you know, in, in a reverse interlinear or some other kind of interlinear, that's an aorist passive subjunctive. You say, well, why? Wait a minute. It's, it, it's an aorist. Well, it, it, 
it, it's hilarious because it's Paul's viewing an event again that it, it's going to happen when it happens. You know that that that's that's a whole completed event. But the subjunctive mood in Greek is something we really haven't talked about on the podcast before. The subjunctive is the mood of unreality. Greek grammar, the indicative mood is the mood of reality, things that have already taken place or already in process. We're, we're either, we've either watched them happen or are watching them happen. Subjunctive is there's some kind of contingency. There, it hasn't happened yet. There's something, some aspect that's either delaying it or it's out there. And that's what we have here. So yeah, when Christ comes back, you know, it's a reference to the, the full orb of the event. And by the way, since it is a reference to the sort of completeness, you can't really parse this up into stages like a rapture to second coming. It's just a generic reference to um, the appearance of, of Jesus, just generally, broadly. So that's why we have that, that tense there. But it's subjunctive that there's a contingency. St- other stuff has to happen before this happens, uh, that kind of idea. So you know, we get this out there in the future kind of thinking. And when that happens, you will also appear with him. There's our future tense, future passive. You will, you will also be manifested would be the way to translate that uh, in, in passive language. You will be manifested. You will be revealed or something like that when he comes back. So we've got already elements. We've got not yet elements in the first four verses. Now, to unpack this a little bit more, just in terms of, you know, in, try to keep it in, in simple terms and, again, terms that, you know, relate to what he's going to get into as far as how this should affect your behavior. I mean, ultimately, that's where Paul's going. In, in other words, you have been given new life. Okay, your, your new life in Christ has already started. You're a new creation, kind of like Second Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So this language of Paul, you have been raised, you have died, your life has been hidden. Okay, it's just a way, of, another way of saying you've been given new life. You you have a you're a new creation, and this life, this new life, means that the old life is over. Okay, you have died, so you've been given new life. You're a new creation, and since you're a new creation, the old life is over with. Your destiny in this new life is not yet completely manifest. You're going to be experiencing the ramifications of that as time goes on. But you know, ultimately, someday out there when Christ appears, then you will be manifest it, it really for who you are in, in an ultimate sense. What's going on now is real. If you're a new creation, your life should be changing because of your new status. But your experience, again, is still in this world. You still struggle. You still have sin. Uh, again, these things can't be avoided because you're still in this present reality, even though you've had a status change. And ultimately, you know, things will go full circle and you will be manifested for what you really are, children of God, uh, members of the council. Again, these, some of these other passages we've talked about in Colossians and then in prior in, in Hebrews, the, the previous two series, or the previous series in Hebrew and then the Hebrews and then this one. Uh, Another way of looking at it still is, as certain as Jesus' life and impending appearance is, so your new life and appearance with him will be, and is. Again, we have this already idea and not yet. You know, when he is manifest, when the validity of his resurrection is manifest to everyone by virtue of his return, then your faith in him will be vindicated because you will be manifest with him as what you truly are. And that, you know, he's hinting at glorification here, obviously, in the return of the Lord and believers returning with him, all this kind of stuff that is familiar to us uh, eschatologically you know, in the not yet part. But it, it's rooted 
in something that's already taken hold, a new status. Now, Mu, in his commentary, I kind of like you know what he some of the things he says here. I think are worth observing. He writes, "This identification reflects the relentless Christological focus of Colossians." Again, Colossians is all about the preeminence of Jesus. The mood continues, and it reminds us of Paul's autobiographical remark in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. There's your status change. But Christ lives in me. There's your ongoing. The life I now live in the body, ongoing. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These verses, Moose says, reflect Paul's conviction that the life and destiny of the believer are inextricably bound up with Christ. He continues, our identification with Christ now real, but hidden, again, because we have this futuristic idea, the not yet idea is still, you know, is in the passage, will one day be manifest. As John puts it, quote, dear friends, now we are, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Now, let me just break in here. It's, it's interesting that the same lemma that's used in Colossians 3.4, okay, the Colossians 3.4 reference about appearing, occurs in that passage. Okay? What we, you know, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, not yet been manifest. That Greek lemma is the same as the lemma in Colossians 3.4 about being manifest. Back to Mu. But we know that when Christ appears, the same verb again, same, same Greek lemma appearing when Christ is manifest, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2. And let me just break in again. It, there you have the already not yet, but very plainly. We are children of God, but what we, you know, what we will be has not yet been manifest. It's, it's exactly what Paul's saying here in Colossians 3 back to move for a little bit. Because Christ is now in us, we have the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. And it is that same union expressed in the other direction, that we are in Christ, that will bring hope to its certain accomplishment. As the text in 1 John suggests, the believer's appearance in glory or in a state of glory will mean a final transformation into the image of Christ. And then he references Romans 8.29. By means of resurrection, uh, and he references 1 Corinthians 15.43 there. In Christ, God has restored the definitive and perfect image of God that was marred in the fall. And believers who are joined with him will share that image. You know, again, this is about transformation, being conformed to the image of his son. The whole concept of imaging is familiar to this audience by virtue of our discussion in Unseen Realm and in podcast episodes, being God's represent, representatives. Again, Paul is, is, is getting at this, the same set of thoughts, just in you know, different verbiage. So what Paul's talking about here is, you know, first of all, the believer's destiny, glorification and everlasting life with Christ because we are united to him, we are in him, we are in the body of Christ, all these phrases Paul uses. And secondly, he's talking about this new life, a thing true of us because of union with Christ means that our old life is over. We're dead. Our old life is over. Paul is going to proceed then to tell the Colossian believers that following Jesus, living in conformity to his will, means thinking that way. It means thinking that way about your old life. I mean, look at what Paul says elsewhere, just a few other passages. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I've already alluded to this one. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, the, the, your old life is dead. You have, to, you have to think this way, moment by moment, day by day. That, this is actually what Scripture means by the renewing of your mind. My old life is over. I'm a new creation. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Romans 6, 5 through 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, this is why Paul will attach, he proceeds to attach a series of commands to what he's just said in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Now, if you actually look at what follows, and we'll include uh, Colossians, the first four verses in this, but here are the imperatives. You know, what Again, if you have Bible software, you can run a, search, a real quick search for the imperatives. That imperative is the mood of command in Colossians chapter 3. And this is what you get. Here are the imperatives in these first 17 verses. You have verse 1, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists a whole bunch of struggles you know, of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, so on and so forth. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. So put away, another command, put away these old things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Again, that he picks that one out as an old behavior. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. In other words, do the opposite. You know, you're a new creation. And set that in your mind. My old life is over. I'm a new creation. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So let rule is the command. And here's another command, the same verse, be thankful. And then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So let dwell. So we have seek, set your minds, put to death, you know, what, what's earthly in you. Put away, again, all these, you know, old, old behavior patterns. Don't lie to one another. Put on the new behavior patterns and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Those are the commands. And be thankful. Uh, those are the commands in the first 17 verses. And they extend from this, this status change. And if we can just boil it down, Paul's talking about a status change. Your old life is gone. You're a new creation. And again, the, the, that conclusion is based upon the first two chapters of who Jesus is and his exclusive ability to cancel your, your, your debt of sin, you know, nail it to the cross. You know, we've, we've talked about all this. The fact that he you know, is, is exalted above all other powers, both good guys and the dark powers, again, that, that would, would seek to enslave you, know, you, you know, and, and what he did on the cross, the cross event. Okay. Because of all that stuff that we've covered in the first two chapters, Paul transitions in chapter three to what you know a lot of people would call practical stuff. Personally, I think the first two chapters are practical theology. There's nothing more practical than biblical theology if you're actually thinking theologically. That, that shouldn't be a conundrum. Again, it tends to be an excuse to not think about that stuff and then just get to the preachy stuff. Again, that's not where Paul's head is. Paul draws his conclusions about conduct on the basis 
of theology on the basis of what he's just talked about doctrinally. And some of that stuff's pretty heady stuff. You know, we, we've spent a number of weeks, you know, in, in those two chapters. So these commands really, again, extend from your status change. The commands describe decisions that you have to make now, what states of mind that believers need to cultivate. And if that's done, states of mind, again, behaviors that will be manifest okay, in our lives, in our conduct, these decisions or states of mind reinforce or demonstrate the idea or reality that our old life, the life we live that led to everlasting death, and that would cut us off from everlasting life, okay, that's what the old life could produce. Temporary gratification, everlasting death. And so we have a new status, and our state of mind needs to involve all that. My old life is over. I'm a new creation. So the commands are actually ways to remind ourselves of the real life that awaits us, you know, what our destiny now is, and how our old life hastened self-destruction and anger and misery to everyone around us in some way. Now, the reverse, again, the idea of putting on are decisions that we have to make to cultivate positively. So, I mean, all of this is about, you know, again, like I said a few minutes ago, what, what Paul's saying here is kind of unpacking the idea of being renewed in your mind. Again, decisions to make, both negatively, don't, you know, don't go back to the old life, and positively, put on these new things. And states of mind, again, you're, you're doing this not to earn brownie points with God. You're doing this because you're thankful. Okay, there's, there's verse 15, the command to be thankful. You're doing this because you're thankful for what has been done for you. Again, we're not earning brownie points with God. We're not working our way to heaven. We're not you know, hoping our perfection or near perfection does the, does the job. It's not in view at all. Again, first two chapters, it's about the preeminence of Christ and the cross event. That's what does it. That's what changes your status. And, you know, as we've said many times, God loves you when, when you had the, the, the awful, terrible status. You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But what changes our status is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Paul is saying, look, because of all that stuff, verse one, <laughs> you know, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Again, you know, to set your mind on things that are above, verse two. So he's talking about decisions and a, and a state of mind. And these are, these are, this is ongoing. It's not a once and done deal. There's an already status that you have, and there's a not yet point of manifestation, point of, you know, ultimate uh, reality, point of, you know, ultimate uh, transformation that's still out there. So let, let's talk about his list a little bit. Uh, the things to avoid. You know, this is this is how Paul does this. You know, what, in, in the chapter uh, when he gets to uh, you know verse four, where we just ended, then he starts going into you know, put to death therefore what's earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander. Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Then he transitions again to some more you know, positive things. So let's talk about the, the, the negative things that he lists there. Now, Mu uh, points out this. Again, I, I like the way he puts this. He says, the list of sins that we find in verses 5 and 8 have parallels in a number of other New Testament texts. 
and are sometimes matched by comparable lists of virtues on the other side, like in verse 12. Scholars have dubbed these respectively vice lists and virtue lists, again, for lack of a better category. And they have argued that they represent a literary form that the New Testament writers have borrowed from their environment. Whether this is the case or not, Moose says, what's more important for the interpretation of Colossians 3 is the degree to which the vices listed here reflect actual problems in the Colossian community. The list of sins in verse 5 focus on sexual sins, while the one in verse 8 singles out sins relating to interpersonal relationships. The virtue list of verse 12, along with many of the positive exhortations of verses 13 and 17, 13 through 17, also focus on community relations. That's the end of the Moo quote. Regarding the sexual sins uh, in, in, you know, that are listed in, uh, in this section, O'Brien, in his commentary, his word biblical commentary, has a little thought here. He says, five sins are identified with the earthly members, fornication, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness in general. And it's interesting that he says about that list, those five things, there is a movement from the outward manifestations of sin to the inward cravings of the heart. The acts of immorality overtly and uncleanness due to the inner springs from which they come. Now, that, again, that's O'Brien. Again, that's a good observation. And, and he's right. You know, The list here moves from the stuff that people see to the stuff they don't see, the stuff that's lurking inside. And Paul's saying, you got to deal with all of it. You've got to put off these things. Because you've had a status change, and your old life is dead. It's gone. So you need to be thinking in this mode, thinking in these terms. This, the reality of your status change needs to run through your head every day, and even throughout each day. Uh, because that, again, is going to lead you to be you know, sort of on, on the page you need to be on, you know, thinking about you know, what it is that pleases God and what doesn't please God, what it is that, that destroys you and other people around you and what doesn't. Uh, again, this is, this is a mental and a spiritual and ultimately a, a behavioral transformation based upon, again, the, the content of the theology Paul's been, been getting into. Now, I want to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Again, just I'm, I'm going to track through these, these terms, the, the terms for sexual sins here. There, there's a few, a few things that are worth observing here. Uh, the first one in uh, verse 5, you know, sexual immorality is how ESV translates, translates it. It's the Greek term porneia. Um, note that porneia is different than adultery. Adultery is, is a different Greek word altogether. It's moikeia. Uh, and this porneia, just generally speaking, is a term that should not be exclusively restricted to ritualized sex, like in pagan religious practices, like engaging with temple prostitutes. That certainly is included in it. And again, if, if you're married, you know, then, then it, it transitions to adultery. But if you're not you know, married, it, it's, still a, it's still a sin. But it's wider than this ritualistic idea. Uh, even though that's a big part of it. And, you know, in John 8, 41, for instance, you know, we see you know, evidence of this where the, the Pharisees accuse Jesus this way. They say, you are doing the works of your father. You're doing the works your father did. You know, Jesus says, you know, this is what you guys are doing. You know, you're the father, the devil, and all that stuff. And they said to him, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And they, they, they accuse him of being born out of wedlock. Uh, you know, and, and so it, it goes back to the Joseph Mary situation, which has nothing to do with temple prostitution. 
Okay, so pornea, again, extends beyond that. And I actually blogged this at one point on my website because this seems to be a kind of trendy thing, uh, even in evangelicalism now, to restrict pornea to like temple prostitution. And I guess, you know, it seems like, I hope not, but it seems like to legitimize fornication. Uh, it's just, it's completely wrongheaded. So I wrote this on my website. If you read the context of the passage, John eight forty one. Verse 41 is an accusation levied at Jesus by the Pharisees. What do they mean by tarnishing Jesus this way? They are charging he was born out of wedlock. He's the out-of-wedlock child of Mary and Joseph. And it isn't hard to see why they do that. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 clearly tells us Jesus was not Joseph's child and that Joseph found Mary pregnant before he and Mary had been married. They were only betrothed or engaged. Joseph stayed with Mary for the duration of her pregnancy, even though people knew they were only betrothed. No doubt they were ridiculed and held in contempt. Matthew one twenty five also clearly tells us that Joseph had no sexual relations with Mary until after the birth of Jesus. Again, it says that explicitly. Again, which would also be the, be a time that, which would also be time enough for the traditional betrothal period to have elapsed. It runs its course, and everybody can see she's pregnant. The charge that Jesus was the child of fornication, pornea, very clearly tells us that pornea refers to sexual intercourse before marriage. Again, at least in that context, it does. And that was the whole point of the Pharisees' jibe. Jesus was illicit. Again, that, that's how they, that's their dig at him. Next term in the list is impurity, akatharsia, which refers to any kind of moral corruption. Uh, it's applied to sexual sins. Uh, Mu has in a footnote to, to, to legitimize that, to validate that, that akatharsia is paired with porneia in other passages, 2 Corinthians 12.21, Galatians 5.19, Ephesians 5.3, Revelation 17.4. Again, it's very clear that this is also sort of you know, sexual in its orientation. Passion, the next term, pathos in Greek, is lust. Again, it is often in a sexual context, not exclusively, but it does show up. Romans 1.26 is an example, 1 Thessalonians 4.5. Evil desire generally in James 1, 14 and 15, this is the same term, but again, other passages it's, can very clearly have a sexual uh, flavor to it. Covetousness, which is idolatry. It's kind of an, an interesting description. Why, why would covetousness be described this way? You know, Mu says, says this, the, the, the Greek term pleon akia, you know, literally, if, if you want to verbalize that, to, to want more, uh, covetousness or greed. Moo says the, it's the last item in the list. Likewise, usually it has the general sense of an inappropriate desire for more. But this general sense would, of course, include the uncontrolled desire for more and greater sexual experiences. You know, it's tacked onto the end of these other you know, words that have a sexual orientation. Moo continues, Philo claimed that the first commandment prohibits money lovers. On, you know, and then he cites a reference in Philo. And the New Testament frequently highlights the love of material possessions as offering a particularly enticing and entrapping alternative to the love of God. Now, let me stop there. What Moo's going to do, do here is he's, he's, he's going to transition into talking about why the association with idolatry? What is it about wanting more? Greed, whatever the object of greed is, whether it's sex or money or something else. What, what, what's the connection with idolatry? And he's, he's saying, Philo and, and, and other writers, you know, make this connection too. So this isn't unusual for the New Testament. Back to Mu, he says, Ephesians, as usual, offers the closest parallel to this verse. 
For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's Ephesians 5.5. 5. The word used in the Ephesians text okay, for idolatry occurs along with immoral person, pornos, and greedy person, pleon ectes, in 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 11, and with an immoral person in 1 Corinthians 6.9 and Revelation 21.8, 22.15. Clearly, then, we are dealing with a customary cluster of terms and ideas. Jewish writers habitually trace the various sins of the Gentiles back to the root problem of idolatry. And especially this was true of sexual sins. Putting some other god in the place of the true god of the Bible leads to the panoply of sexual sins and perversions that characterize the Gentile world. Paul reflects this tradition here. Sexual sins arise because people have an uncontrolled desire for more and more experiences and pleasures. And such a desire is nothing less than a form of idolatry. That's the, the Moo quote. And I think that summarizes the contents pretty well. Now, again, that's, that's all in verse 5. When you get to verse 8, there's another list of sins. Paul says, you know, but now you must put them all away. Here's another list to, to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Again, as, as commentators have pointed out, and I referenced a couple. First list is, has, you know, is sexual in orientation. The second list is really about interpersonal relationships. Uh, to quote Mu again here, I like the way he puts this as well. Determining the exact reference of the five items that follow depends first on deciding just what the concluding prepositional phrase from your lips modifies. Okay, but I'll just read it from the ESV again. From your mouth, from your lips. ESV has, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your lips, from your mouth. So Moo says the, the TNIV, uh, again, prefers lips to mouth and translations disagree. The word there, of course, obviously is used to connote the speaking function of the mouth. If it modifies the verb, okay, if it modifies the verb to put away, then all the sins listed here will have to be some sense sins of speech. Put away from your mouth all these things, anger, wrath, you know, malice, so on and so forth. Now, Moo's actually going to sort of object to that. Uh, he says, but giving this extended meaning to these words does not have good lexical support. Let me break in here. What he's basically saying is, look, depending on how you take the grammar, if, if from your mouth modifies all of these terms, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, you know, obscene talk is kind of obvious. Slander is kind of obvious. But what about anger, wrath, and malice? Well, if, if they all modify from your mouth, then, then we have to define these in terms of speech to, to know what specific sins Paul is talking about. But Moose saying, well, that's probably not that defensible. And you can see why, because anger, rage, and malice can be expressed in other ways. I mean, you could punch somebody in the face, you know, that, that, that demonstrates anger. You don't have to say a word. So back to Mu, he says, more likely then, from your lips should be attached to the end of the list only as a way of reinforcing the last two, which are kind of obvious, slander and, and obscene talk, to use the ESV translation. On either reading of the syntax, Paul's concern, though, is especially that Christians would avoid unnecessarily critical and abusive speech. It means at least that much, but with the first three, you know, Paul's probably not restricting it to just speech. Anger, wrath, and malice, again, Paul, you know, would know that 
they can be expressed in other ways, and they should all, none of them should be part, you know, of, of, of a Christian's life. What about this obscene talk, uh, you know, item? Because I know people are going to have questions, and I've actually gotten emails about this too, you know, like, should Christians swear and all this kind of stuff? Uh, again, you know, it, it, I, I guess it's a, it's, it's a reasonable question to ask. I mean, I just grew up in a, in a Christian environment where you just didn't do that. I didn't do it. Be, I don't do it because I grew up with so much of it. It just kind of turned me off. But, it, you know, people have this question. So what, what about the term? Moo writes this. The Greek word behind filthy language uh, literally means shameful words. And it's rare, occurring only here in biblical Greek. It seems to have the general use of obscene language and probably in combination with slander refers to the use of coarse language when defaming another person. And again, you could, you could go out to a lexicon like BDAG for that. Lydell Scott, again, you're going you're to see this term used in, in, in a defamatory sense. So it doesn't quite you know, overlap with what we would think of as maybe crude language or scatological language. Scatological is, is a, you know, in reference to body parts and body functions. Um, it, it, it doesn't clearly have a one-to-one overlap with that kind of stuff. It, it actually, again, most likely refers to using language that is defamatory in some way, or maybe, maybe pejorative would be another word. Now, you can certainly use those kinds of words in defamatory and pejorative ways, you know, and that would, would be what Paul is targeting. But it seems that, that that's actually what's more in view with this vocabulary choice and not just being crude. Now, that, that's not an endorsement of being crude, obviously. But again, for the sake of you know, what, what Paul would have had in his head, uh, this would be language. Again, the, the whole list really I mean, is going to include you know, this thought uh, or be included in this thought. You know, what, what Paul's really angling for is tearing somebody down. You know, and, and there are a variety of ways you can do that. You can do that delicately. You can do it crudely. Paul is opposed to both. I mean, this is not what, what, what Christians do, you know, to defame and tear down and just ridicule, you know, all, all these sorts of things. You know, this is what, what Paul is concerned with, not whether you might, you know, have an expletive, you know, that refers to a body part or something like that. I mean, if it's aimed at someone in a defamatory way, well, then that, that's really what's, what is in view here in Paul's head. Again, it's not an endorsement of the other, but in terms of vocabulary, you know, what he's targeting is the, the treatment of other people. Now, on the positive side, Paul gets into this when he hit verse 12. Paul writes, but put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ, okay, which is not technically the Bible, by the way. I'm going to break in here. Because Jesus didn't write anything. But it, it, it really refers to, to what Jesus taught, the record of Jesus' teaching, I guess we could say to him. Let the word of Christ, let Christ's teachings dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's through the the, the section through verse 17 that we're going to cover today. So there's a lot in there. You know, a number of these verses, you know, could be commented on, but we're going to be selective here for the sake of the episode. Verse 16, let the word of Christ, again, let Jesus' teachings. And, and that includes his example as well, not just such as verbal teachings. And let, let what Jesus taught, either by word or example, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, the imperative there is obvious, let dwell. Again, this, this should be something that you internalize and that you let influence your thinking. Okay? We're talking about renewing of the mind. Okay? You know, kind of, you know mental, mental transformation here because that's going to influence, you know, your, your outward conduct. So, being renewed in the mind. So, that, that's what let dwell is getting at. And then he you know, he, he adds these participles. So what you should let dwell, that's the imperative, inside, you know, in, in, in your thoughts is what Jesus taught. Again, either word or deed, just, just his teaching. And then that you have these, these three sort of participles that extend from the imperative or that, that are connected to the imperative, teaching, admonishing, and singing. And the, these three participles explain how we let Jesus' teaching and example dwell in us richly. We do that through teaching. We do that from you know through admonishing one another, and we can also do that with music. Again, that just helps us internalize things. And obviously, this is a verse that that you know people are familiar with. You know, in the, in the whole, all the debates over church music and should we do this, should we not do that? You know, and and both the endorsement and the critique of you know what happens in in worship, church worship. I, I think you can reduce the passage to a fairly simple question, but it, it's also kind of a profound question. And that is, does your church worship, in other words, does what you sing, the music performed, does it actually teach and admonish? And there's no participle in here for make you feel good, or, or even does it encourage you or uplift you? Now, you know, the point is not that it's wrong to have music that encourages or uplifts, but the point is that it is scripturally misguided to not have music, okay, that, that teaches. I mean, you need music that, that has, has some content to teach you. It, it teaches you the content of Jesus' teachings. It's consistent with the content of Jesus' teachings. And then it also exhorts you to follow his example. You know, I, I, you know I'll be the first one to say I've, I've heard a lot of music in church, and some of it you know, immediately comes to mind that, that hits those targets really well. And then there's others that don't, doesn't hit them at all. You know, it, it's really about creating a spiritual buzz. And okay, you know, I, I, I understand that that's, that can be important. That can play a role, you know, in our motivation and, you know, pick us up and you know, be an encouragement and whatnot. But if that's all you're doing, if that's all you're doing, then you are missing the mark of what Paul describes here. You know, that, that, that helps you internalize what needs to be internalized. So again, I, I think it's a, it's a simple point, but it's also a pretty important point. So that, in a nutshell, is, is the first part of our episode, you know, where, where Paul is talking about the already but not yet in terms of your personal status as a believer. Okay, you're already dead. Your old life is over. You've had a change of status. And you know, now, in the here and now, we need to be transformed in our minds 
Okay, that he's going through all this, you know, we need to set aside the old life, we need to be transformed in our minds, here are some ways to do it, here are some things to avoid, because we have a destiny. And at some point, again, who we are is going to be manifest. What we believe, the validity of what we believe is going to be displayed, is going to be manifest. So we need to keep all these things in mind. The second thing I want to hit on in the episode is the already but not yet status of Christ's rule, okay, his kingdom rule. Now, I have flirted with this topic on a couple of other episodes, but I decided I'm going to take this episode as sort of a place where this lives now so that you know, we can easily reference it you know, to people who ask or you know, people can pass it on and say, here's where Mike talked about XYZ topic in a little more detail. And this whole idea of Christ's kingdom rule, and this is tied to the defeat of the principalities and powers. So Again, we flirted with this topic already in a couple episodes and in, and in you know outside the series in Colossians and other episodes, but this will be a place where we can camp a little bit on the topic. So back to the beginning of, of our passage, Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, he's on a throne, so you got to be ruling something. You don't sit on thrones and not rule things. Okay, this, this, is, this is imagery that speaks of rulership. And, you know, how, how, do, how do we parse this? Well, I want to zero in on just one aspect of Colossians 3.1, this reference to seated at the right hand of God. Okay, just that simple idea, that simple phrase. That phrasing shows up in other places in the New Testament. Some of them are Pauline, some of them are other writers. And it's just kind of interesting when you track on that one phrase, where you wind up. Okay, let's just, I'm just going to read through some of these passages. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. This is Paul. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Here's verse 20. Okay, all that, the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, this age, there's here already, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you get an already but not yet, and, and along with that, there is the supremacy, the rulership of Christ above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion. Again, this is Pauline terminology for the powers of darkness. Christ is superior to them. Their authority that they had over the Gentile nations has now been nullified and delegitimized. They have every right, and God has every expectation that they should be brought back into the fold. 1 Peter three eighteen through 22 again, the same, you know, we're looking for the same phrase, right hand. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, and but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to all this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Through what? Through, through getting wet? No, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Again, think, just think of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Okay, that's not where the Great Commission starts. That's usually how it's quoted. That's actually not how the Great Commission starts. It starts in verse 18. It's not just Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Verse 18, all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay, Christ is ruling something. And the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God both tells us that the kingdom has begun, the kingdom rule has begun, the power, the, you know, the, I should say the authority is a better way to put it, but the authority of the gods of the nations from the Old Testament who are enslaving the Gentile, their authority has been nullified, delegitimized. And what the disciples are supposed to do is make disciples from those nations, you know, make them members of the family of God, because as the kingdom of God increases, the kingdom of darkness diminishes. That, in a nutshell, is spiritual warfare. It's not praying some incantation or yelling at a demon. This is how spiritual warfare is usually taught. Like, I'm going to assume the authority to, to pray something really loud, then the demons are going to get scared and go away. Okay, what spiritual warfare actually is, is the Great Commission. That's what it is. Growing one kingdom and diminishing another. Okay, because you have the authority, because you're in Christ on earth, to go into hostile territory and say, it is time to come home. The, the, the authority, the spiritual authority that has been over you, that has enslaved you, yes, it's an outgrowth of a punishment. You know, that, that happened a long time ago. And Israel failed in doing their job to be a kingdom of priests and to bring you back in, you know, into the fold through them, you know, through the, the, the single people of God in the Old Testament context. They failed miserably. But at least you know, God produced the Messiah through the seed of Abraham who has now delegitimized their authority. And they're going to fight. They're going to fight because it's their turf. And so what we do is we remember that all power is given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples okay, from every nation. Because as that kingdom increases, the other one diminishes. And this is a war of attrition. Okay? The gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Again, the gates of hell is the one taking the beating, not the church. This is all content, again, from Unseen Realm. Let's look at another passage, Romans 8, 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things, Paul asks? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And this harkens back to language in Colossians and in Hebrews, that 
the, the, the connection of the resurrection and the ascension with the completion and therefore the completed status of the believer's salvation, the believer's, you know, inclusion in the family of God, that that is all linked to the program of Christ, the work on the, the event of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Because of those three things, that, that's why. That's why we have the forgiveness of sins. That's why we have eternal life. Our works do not contribute to this. They don't supplement it. it it's not based on anything we do. It's based on something that was done for us. Again, we, we sort of beat this horse a lot in the book of Hebrews. We've been beating it in Colossians. There we have it in Romans again. Uh, it's, it, it's the one who's at the right hand of God saying, yep, they're mine, interceding for us. Not he's not sitting there saying, "Oh man, I just wish they'd spend a few more minutes, you know, like in church or something." You know, no, it has nothing to do with performance. It has everything to do with believing in the performance of someone else, i.e., Jesus. Acts chapter two. Again, this is part of, of Peter's you know, sermon. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What Peter's saying is you realize that since the Spirit has come, and and there they are at Pentecost in Acts 2, and everybody has seen this happen, that's proof of the resurrection and the ascension. It's, It's proof of that because Jesus taught that only after I do these things, only after I return to the Father will the Spirit come. Uh, again, it, these these things are just tied together. Hebrews 1, again, we, we hit this a, a lot in our previous series. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he can't sit there until he's made purification for sins. And if he's sitting down and the Spirit comes, then you can be guaranteed, you know, you, you, you can be sure that, that, that you have been forgiven, that purification has been made for your sins. And, and by the way, he became much superior to angels, as superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, it seems clear that the ascension meant Christ took, or he returned to the place of rulership over God's celestial family, the spiritual kingdom, as it were, and the earthly counterpart of that is yet to come. So we have this already, but not yet, rulership going on. Another indication of how the supernatural world of the heavenly host is analogous to, or a template for, the world of humanity. Again, the heavenly host, it's an analogy to the way God looks at us as his earthly family. And again, if you've read Supernatural, if you've read Unseen Realm, uh, if you've heard interviews of, of, of me on, on, about any of those books, that, that's the constant reference point. Why is angelology, if I can use that term, important? Because the way God looks at his heavenly family 
and his relationship to his heavenly family is analogous. It's a template for the way God looks at us. Again, the, these, these points of correlation are drawn intentionally, and they have significant theological ramifications. Um, you know, Acts 2.33. Acts 2.33. Yeah, I'll just read it again. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the Spirit, again, think back. This is, again, Unseen Realm content. If you're not familiar with Unseen Realm, you've got to go to the podcast website, watch the videos, again, for the basic worldview, Divine Council worldview, Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Uh, that's why they're there. But the Spirit, who is but isn't Jesus, just as Jesus is but isn't you know, God the Father. I mean, he is God, but he's not the Father. Well, the Spirit is the Spirit. But he's also equated with Jesus in certain passages. You know, Paul says twice, the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, Spirit of Christ and Spirit of God, you know, Spirit of Jesus and Spirit of God are interchanged in the New Testament. So the Spirit, who is but isn't Jesus, is sent because Jesus conquered death. That's the Genesis 3 solution. Okay? He is everywhere present in believers, you know, which which means he is there to combat the dominion of sin. That's the Genesis 6 solution. Remember, there are three reasons why the world is a mess, not just once, not just the fall. It's three. Genesis 3, rebellion. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, rebellion. And then what happens at Babel. And so the third of these is the Spirit is the agent who launched the reclamation of the nations. That's the solution for Babel. And that happens in Acts 2. So the, the, again, Acts 2 is the validation because the Spirit ob- obviously showed up. That's the validation of the resurrection and the ascension, because again, Jesus said, this isn't going to happen until these other things happen. So when you see this happen, you know that, that there, you can be sure that, you know, I am at the right hand of God. I have been raised from the dead. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to have eternal life. You're, you're, we're all, you're, you're in my family now, all this stuff. And, 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 and again, the, the Spirit is the trigger to all of this. The Spirit comes and shows that, okay, Jesus did conquer death. Spirit comes as proof that he, he rose again and ascended to the Father. I mean, even though lots of people have seen him, after, you know, post-resurrection appearances and all that, but this is another way to look at it. And when the Spirit comes, he indwells believers. And that's the, the retardation, the inhibition of depravity. We now have something inside of us that works against depravity, which was the, the big point of fallout for the Genesis 6 episode. And the Spirit is also here to you know, indwell and empower people at Pentecost who go back to the nations and become these little cell groups to plant churches and and to tell people about the Messiah. Because there's this guy, Paul, that's going to come down the road and a lot of other believers too, that are going to go out from here in Jerusalem into those nations and reclaim them. Again, all of these things work together. And and they contribute again to the the whole question of the importance of the incarnation, you know, to you know, to the whole plan of salvation. It wasn't for the angels that, that Jesus did this. It was for humans. It was for humanity. And, you know, Hebrews 1, 13, to which of the angels did, did God ever say, hey, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, it's this right-hand language. It's only to the Son that he says that because when he's seated at the right hand of God, he is superior to everything else in heaven, you know, except the Father, okay? So, again, all of these ideas, these disparate threads, they all come together. Uh, again, you just have to sort of see the lay of the land for that. So to wrap up this episode, there are two already but not yet things going on in these 17 verses. One is the status of the believer, okay, and the other is the idea of rulership with Christ. Now, those two things are connected. I think you can already tell that. 
But I wanted to present them as sort of two separate already but not yet themes that are going on in this chapter. Already but not yet isn't just about eschatology. I mean, it, it is about eschatology, but it's about other things too. This is, a, this is sort of a, a paradigm in Scripture, a mode of thinking that you're going to see theologically in a number of places attached to a number of ideas, number of aspects of theology. And if I can, you know, sort of give, give a little shameless plug here at, at the end of this, a lot of this stuff that we went through today, I, I've, I've talked about in the Angels book and, will, and have talked about in the forthcoming, whenever that is, uh, Demons book. But this is important stuff. It's a good drill down. Again, if you're listening to the podcast and you, you haven't read Supernatural, you haven't read Unseen Realm, you're a bit handicapped here. But you can get caught up and listen to it again. Again, these are important places to drill down in, within a worldview. Again, if, if you have ever, have ever suspected that, boy, you know, I, I have lots of, lots of you know, Bible stuff floating around in my head, but I don't know how to connect these things. They must be connected in some way. Well, your intuition is correct. Your intuition is correct. And so that, that's one of the things we try to do here on the podcast. It's one of the things I try to do in what I write. Lots of places, I mean, well, I shouldn't say lots, but the places that do teach people, the churches that, that do spend time teaching to people, do a good job of giving them data. But it's, a, it's an altogether different thing to connect the, the points of data, to connect the dots. And so hopefully, again, you get a little sense of that here in, in this episode. But again, the, the takeaway is already but not yet operating on two different levels in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. All right, Mike. Well, when can we get more Unseen Realm material? <laughs> when is the second one, Unseen Realm 2, coming out? Yeah, what do well, I got to do? That's, that's not even book? a twinkle in my eye right Oh, my now. gosh. What do we have to do? But you can get all that content on, what is it, uh, moreunseenrealm.com? Yeah, I mean, that, that takes you a little bit you know, beyond uh, Unseen Realm. But, but there's a tab in moreunseenrealm.com that says what's next. And it has a long grocery list. <laughs> we need top. to start chipping away. There's at a, them, there's Mike. a, there's a lot, there's a lot more to be added, but again, everything I produce in some way, you know, is going to you know, drill down into the, into the first one. You, you got to get the first one, got to get unseen realm, get the lay of the land. Uh, and, and again, if, if you have this sneaking suspicion that the stuff in the Bible must, that there, there must be something that connects all of it. Your suspicion is correct. And again, that, that's what I try to do in the book. Uh, you know, give you the lay of the land and connect the dots so that you have the you have the framework in your head. All right, there you go. Well, go get his new Angels book, too, while you're at it. And uh, leave a review, too, please. Uh, we'd appreciate that. All right, Michael, we wrap up Chapter 3 next week. And uh, looking forward to that. And with that, Mike, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.